As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 200. 200! <laughs> I got so distracted by, like, moving my microphone that what <laughs> I was saying didn't quite resonate. Yes, it's episode 200. Yes, it is. Finally. Such a nice round number. We, oh, man, I feel like our longtime listeners cannot fully, appre- like, no, they're probably the ones who can fully appreciate yeah. the journey that has been this podcast mm-hmm. for the past uh, over two years over two, two years almost two almost and a half two and a half years since Man. i was like hey we should have a podcast thank god we're friends we spend so much time <laughs> together <laughs> oh, i'd be terrible if we hated each other <laughs> it would be terrible if we hated each other um yeah it's episode 200 so should we announce our winners first or should we talk about the episode first I would announce our winners first. Okay. Do you want to start or do you want me I'll to start. start? Yeah. So as um, our listeners know, we had, um, in honor of episode 200, we had two Kobo Aura Ones from our sister company, Kobo. Thank you. Yes. Um, that we are uh, giving away. And we had people tag us in cat pictures and dog pictures. And we randomly picked from those posts. And um, so I get to announce the cat person. Mm-hmm. And um, it is uh, Christina Kinsella on uh, Instagram. Yes. Just adorable black and white photo. It's really cute. Um, again, we randomized it. With a, uh, well, we say, we'll say adorable. All of them are adorable. They're all adorable. But um, when we came through, we were both like, oh, oh I know. Those boy. are so cute ones. Oh. I know. We went back and looked and adorbs. Yeah. Super cute. So congratulations. And the dog winner is uh, Daryl Keeping. It's Twisted Sittler on Twitter. Uh, Daryl actually a long-time listener. He responds to us, which is pretty great. But... His picture of Lannister, which he hashtagged. Amazing. Mm -hmm, Indeed. Um, Lannister always pays his debts and looks for a sweet sunbeam to sleep in. So the picture is his dog laying in the sun. Uh, So congratulations, Daryl, as well. We will send you both direct messages so that you can get these Kobo Aura Ones from us. Again, we're going to cover, obviously, shipping and all that jazz. It'd be a terrible (laughs) giveaway. Hi, you're responsible for paying for it to get to you. But no, they'll just magically show up. Yeah. Um, so this is come and gone, but if you want to keep tagging us in cat and dog pictures. Also, when we say Kobo is our sister company, like we are both owned by the same company, so we could probably weasel out a few more free devices for some special events. <laughs> so we'll come up with some other things to give away uh, from them <laughs> in some time in the future. Uh, what did we do today? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so... <laughs> That's you were right to do what you're doing. Uh, uh, all right. So when we first started this podcast, um, we 
had hoped to do author interviews, but we had no idea how we were going to get authors or like Mm-mm. what authors would want to come on. And our friends at Source Books told us that they had this um, young adult author named Marik um, who'd written a book about a school shooting called This Is Where It Ends. And they wanted her to come on our podcast. And Marik was our the fourth episode. Mm-hmm. She was our very first podcast uh, author. Um, she Her book went on to be the Big Library Read. So mm-hmm. we have... Um, interviewed her twice and her book and books now because she has two out mm-hmm. um and she was in town yes from overseas like she was in- yeah so she's from the netherlands and when you by the way when you say like when when i first interviewed her her book had not come out yet this Correct. is where it had not come out yet since that time, it had spent 60 straight weeks on the New York Times bestsellers list. Both of her books on the New York Times bestseller list. And now both of her books are on the New York Times bestsellers list. So her second one is Before <laughs> I Let Go, and that came out a couple weeks ago. And yeah, she was in town um, doing an event at our local library where we do all of our events. So when I saw her her tour schedule, normally, peek behind the curtain, the library reaches out to us and is like, hey, here's our list of people. Let's work together and do some stuff. And we say, yes, thank you. That's amazing. Yep. This time I sent Marik uh, a direct message on Twitter as myself. And I was like, you're coming to our local library. We want to hang out. And she's like, yeah, let's go get dinner. And then I was like, also, we want to do your event. And she's like, yeah, let's do that too. Um, so we didn't just get to interview her. We got to spend the entire evening with her. We did. We took her to a local place called Melt. Mm-hmm. Ate some ginormous grilled cheese sandwiches. She, I didn't say anything at the moment, but... Um, she dipped her french fries in mayonnaise, which is, I know, I like, that's this like a thing. And uh, that's how I sometimes eat mine, too. And I was just like, oh, my God, she totally did it. <laughs> you did the thing that she we I thought thing. you might do. <laughs> um, yeah, it was great. We got some fantastic questions. Um, got some really great questions from people in the audience. We tried to repeat all those. Those were at the end. Because this is a live uh, podcast, it can it might be a little, bit, little quieter than our normal episodes. Um but yeah, the whole experience was great. She's just such a thoughtful, wonderful human being. Um, I almost got a little choked up at the end just because, like, the whole, like, like I said, she's the first person we ever interviewed. She also happens to be my favorite author, and she was at our library, mm-hmm. so all of it, all, it was a little mind-blowing to me. So a very apropos 200th episode. Agreed. Glad it worked out for us. Yep. Um, if people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can find us on Instagram and Twitter at ProBookNerds, and they can email us directly at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. Yes, they can. If it, did I cut you off? Were you a little that? bit. I was going to say, like, we've gotten some really good emails lately, so please keep those coming. We read all of them. It comes directly to Adam and I. Mm-hmm. Um, we respond, and so. Yeah, my favorite ones. Oh, there was one. I don't even know if you saw it. I'm just going to talk about it. I won't call them out by name, but... Somebody sent us an email that was like, hey, we're from St. Louis and we're taking our child to Cleveland for their 13th birthday. I don't know if they have family here or something. What? No, I did not see that one But the email basically said it wasn't like we want to meet you guys or anything like that. It was like, can you tell me where some cool bookstores are? And I had a field day with that. So that was great. Yeah. What did you tell them? um, There's a little community around us, which you will know very well, called Coventry. Yes. Which... Oh, Max Bax. Max Bax. So there's this... (laughs) I'll, we'll give them a shout out. Max Bax does all of the book selling for all of the live events we do. But they do. So I suggested that, and then I suggested a few others. But I, Coventry, this beautiful little neighborhood, is right by where I went to college. So that felt very on the nose for me to share that with them. And then they also asked for some fun tea shops, of which there are a bunch. 
Um, That's awesome. It was really cool. So if you're ever traveling to Cleveland, even if you don't want to hang out with us or anything like that, if you just want some recommendations yeah. on Cleveland, Jill and I are like team Cleveland. We're all very pro. We got we got it all covered, I think. Yeah, we got your backs. Um, but yeah, that was great. Any type of email you want to send us, we love do it. We love seeing those. We do. Okay, anything else you think of? No, I think that's it. <laughs> okay. All right. I hope you guys enjoy this 200th episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Well, thank you, everybody, for bracing the winter coldness that decided to come back and, and join us. It felt very on the mark, though, seeing as how your second novel is set in Alaska. Um, and it actually had me thinking this morning, something I wanted to ask you anyway was all about the settings that you use in your stories. Mm -hmm. They're very much a part of the book. So for both This Is Where It Ends and Before I Let Go, what went into deciding where you wanted to put these stories and then also how did you use especially for before i let go you know lost creek how did you use that as a character in your story i i mean for both um for both my books like the setting was very specifically tailored for the story i wanted to tell and this is where it ends it wasn't necessarily like it, it could have been anywhere, really. It sort of ended up being Alabama for a host of like geographical reasons, and I needed a good ghost town that I could use to model opportunity on, um, which is how I write all of my towns. I start with ghost towns because I want to know for sure that a, my fictional town can actually exist in real life, um, which is slightly ridiculous, but there you go. <laughs> um, so that, that was sort of more or less coincidental and um, before I let go I really knew I wanted to tell a story that was set in Alaska. I wanted to tell a story that was um, set in this harsh winter um, where I could also play with like the cruelty of nature, the, um, like, the fact that this town Lost Creek is completely cut off from the rest of the world and, and has no opportunity at all to get in touch with people, to um, create lifelines for the, the townspeople. It's just like they're completely cut off. It's claustrophobic. It's um, it's weird, and 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 that really allowed me to delve deep into that weirdness too. Mm. So yeah. So kind of along those same lines, why do you choose to create 
your own fictional towns instead of using ones that already exist? Oh, primarily because it means I get to tailor them completely the way I want them to be and need <laughs> them to be. And that also ties into having like setting as character. I really enjoy like the, the, the whole process of creating characters in books. But for me, a, a good part of that is also creating the setting. And that, that can be as simple as having a layout of the town itself and knowing where the different streets are and having just like a, a, a grid or a map or anything. Um, but also just like the history of a town, um, whatever like legends or myths are there that form and shape how the town sees itself. And it's so much easier to do that when you have complete <laughs> control over a, over a setting as opposed to being stuck with existing existing cities or existing towns. I've done that too and it's fun and it, it's a whole different dynamic but I like having having that creative mm -hmm. control. For the novels as well, th both of the towns you've selected are American cities, mm -hmm. although the last gets as far away <laughs> as you can get. Um, I'm just curious being, you know, from the Netherlands, I know that you're very much a world traveler, but why did you choose American towns for these books? Well, it, it again, I've, especially for, for the first one, that felt very necessary, mm -hmm. seeing as how school shootings aren't really a thing in most of the rest of the world. Right. So knowing that I, I, I started out wanting to tell a story about school shootings mm -hmm. and what it means to be a teenager who lives through an, an experience like that when literally your entire world is upended. And I'd been writing in English for a while at that point. So that part felt very natural to me. Um, writing contemporary was new to me. Mm -hmm. and. I just sort of approached it as, as the story itself and then I started figuring out so what makes sense in terms of setting and um, it, had to be, it had to be America mm -hmm. for, for better or for worse. Like <laughs> I can't deny that school shootings primarily happen here right. and it was also a story that, that came to me while I was in the US mm -hmm. so it's, uh, it, it felt very interconnected with both that sense of travel and, and just like wanting to tell that particular story. And Alaska was Alaska. <laughs> at, at this point, I also, like most of my writer friends are American writers, yeah. and my publisher is obviously an American publisher, so it, it feels more natural to me. I've, I've been playing with European settings a bit, mm -hmm. but it's, it's so different, it's so weird. I think you get a lot of ghost stories from Euro in Europe as opposed to and you find them in America too, but yeah. um, just to follow up on something you said that I'm really interested in, and I've been meaning to ask you for a long time, and I, <laughs> if this is a good time as any in front of other people. Um, <laughs> oh God. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, we're, we're safe. Uh, you mentioned that you've been writing in English for a while before this is where it ends. Yeah. Do you do all of your writing now in, in English? or Because you speak a lot of languages, and American, er, <laughs> American English is not your first. So do you do all of your writing in English? I mean, I've... I actually very recently went back to Dutch for the first time just to mess around and play with a story um, for like there was a specific reason for that uh, that I probably I'm not sure I can talk about that yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> oops. <laughs> 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 uh, 
But yeah, no, I, I went back to, to try my hand at a Dutch short story. And that was the first time in probably about a decade that I wow. wrote fiction in Dutch. I, I write like reports, day job reports in Dutch. Mm -hmm and obviously occasionally emails and things <laughs> like that, but most of my writing is English. So going back to Dutch for that short story was such a weird experience because I, I found myself just like automatically going to, just the way my, my fingers used the keyboard was English. There were shortcuts that made no sense at all in Dutch. <laughs> Occasionally I had to go back and delete entire sentences because I wrote them in English, <laughs> despite being very consciously aware that this needed to be a Dutch story. <laughs> so that was, that was a weird experience. So I'm curious, you know, if as a writer, you're, I don't know how I'm going to phrase this, like if, you're, if you find writing, your writing style is different depending on the language you're writing in, just mm -hmm. because of language and words. And yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, it's one of the reasons why I wouldn't be a good translator for my own books. Um, I, tried, I tried it once, uh, not specifically with these books, but with a short story. I think it was like half a manuscript or something like that. And um, I just tried plain translating it, literally starting at the same point and, and using what I had as source, uh, source text and translating that. And it took me about two or three sentences, and then the story just shifted and went in another direction, because the language was different, the rhythm of the language is different, the um, figures of speech are different, just the tone and, and the, the, the whole like, mood of the language is different. So it ends up being a completely different story, which was, a w it was an interesting experience, but it also, like, cemented for me that I should never ever try to translate my own books because my publisher would hate me. <laughs> so I'll just be that person who's like, well, I tried translating the book. I ended up writing something different. Hope you don't mind. <laughs> um, to that point, we were, the three of us were talking about kind of the craft of writing earlier and the, the process of it. Are you, uh, this is kind of two part, are you able to write multiple <laughs> stories at once and then kind of, if you can, can you do that in different languages? I feel like that would be like a Herculean task. I, I haven't done it in different languages yet, though I did go back and forth while I was, while I was working on the, uh, the short story in Dutch. I was also working on a number of um, English projects, mm -hmm. but it, it's not something like I can't just sit down and, and automatically switch back and forth. You know, I actually have to take time, and ideally some time between whatever those projects are, and, and sort of clear my mind. And whether that's just like going for a walk as a palate cleanser, or listening to different kinds of music, or anything like that, I do have to have some like conscious barrier between one project and the next. I'll, I promise we'll move on from the language stuff in a minute. I have one oh, more follow-up on this. Language I'm stuff obsessed is with this. As for someone who can barely speak English, I'm obsessed with this. Um, that being me, not you, obviously. <laughs> um, I mean, to be fair, that would also no, be No, 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 no. So something, uh, when my sister was in college, she did this uh, immersion course in uh, Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. And she told me, and she was only there for, I think, three weeks. And by the end of the second week, she told me she was thinking in Spanish. So as someone who speaks so many different languages, your thought process, whether it's writing or not, is, is it Dutch or is it when you're 
sitting here talking with us. Is, like, what? It's, it's English for anything like writing related and anything creative, and um, mostly also anything like gaming related. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's, it's usually Dutch for day job stuff. Mm -hmm. and more or less for family stuff, it gets a bit like mixed up there because I'm so focused on, it's so much easier for me to, to express myself in English mm -hmm. because I've learned, like I've had to hone that craft to be able to write. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I have a much broader emotional like vocabulary in English than I do in Dutch. So that, that messes up yeah. the whole like personal relationship <laughs> and family and, <laughs> and in which language to think about that. Um, but a lot of it is very like unconscious too, mm -hmm. in the sense that I'll, I'll and, and I've had these discussions with bilingual friends, friends of mine. Um, occasionally, I'll be writing an email to someone for either like publishing related or day job or anything like that, and I'll look back on it like, maybe two hours later, and I'll I honestly wouldn't be able to tell you in which language I wrote <laughs> that email. Like I hope I didn't mess up because that would be awkward. <laughs> but it's just like there, there isn't even like I don't flip a switch or anything. It's just that's the way mm -hmm. I do it. If I struggle with like finding the right words for something, that isn't a matter of translation either. Like I, if I if I lose like for example the word for table, I wouldn't be able to tell you what the word for table was in Dutch either because it's just gone. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I, I don't know how it works. <laughs> I'm, I'm super interested in like the neurological stuff of it. Um, but languages are fun. <laughs> so kind of on the topic of writing still, but the idea of where your ideas come from. I know this is where it ends, came from a conversation you had with a friend about um, America and, and the school shootings. Yeah. Where did the idea for Before I Let Go come from? Um, a combination of places, really. Um, it wasn't so much like with before uh, with this is where it ends. I could very easily trace it back to that one particular conversation. Um, before I let go was was my wanting to sorry write a <laughs> write a story about friendship and grief and really wanting to set a story in Alaska. Um, stumbling across this this article years ago and it's it's long since been disproven, but. An uh, article about witch hunts in the early modern times and how a lot of our perception of, or at least um, uh, perception of, of whatever witches or prophets or messiahs were at that point was tied into mental illness. Um, we now know that perceptions of mental illness were far more nuanced in the Middle Ages and in early modern times, but even so, it was something that really triggered me. It's like, but what would happen if I took that, that tidbit and, and transported it to contemporary times or to Alaska or wherever, basically? And it's, it's, that's, that's usually how stories uh, come together for me. It's the magpie going around, picking up shiny objects everywhere and then creating this like, conglomerate of <laughs> weird ideas and hopefully making sense. So to, to build on that, something that Joe and I have been talking a lot about the last couple weeks. You very consciously put these wonderfully diverse characters into your books, and you're very outspoken about the importance of there being you know, diverse characters mm -hmm. in books. 
something that we've both been trying to grasp and, and figure out is, as a diverse author, what are your thoughts on other people writing characters that they don't necessarily represent themselves? Like, if a straight author was going to write a queer character, or, or, or a white author was going to write an African-American character, what, what are your thoughts on those types of things? It's a big conversation. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's definitely a complicated one. I'm, I'm not personally opposed to it, provided people do enough research and work to get it as right as possible, work with people who do have that experience to get, uh, get the uh, representation as flawless as possible. It's never going to be perfect, and it doesn't have to be perfect, but it shouldn't harm. And I think that's, that's the basic like, guideline in all diversity discussions and in, in, in many like, in general discussions. Um, whatever you do, do not harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, I think we need to get to a point eventually where it isn't remarked upon anymore that books are diverse because they just reflect the world that mm -hmm. we're all a part of and that we see. Um, having said that, I do think it's, it's important to also look at the type of stories you're telling. So it, it's not just a matter of including diverse characters or including uh, marginalized characters, but it's also a matter of, I don't mind like straight authors writing about queer characters. I would struggle with straight authors writing about homophobia, mm -hmm. for example, or the experience of being marginalized because you're queer. Because I feel like that goes so deeply into some into personal experience that that's going to be not just going to be hard to emulate but also is going to take up space from someone who can tell that story mm -hmm. um, in a far more uh, like truthful manner. Mm -hmm. So I do think there's some nuance there but ideally I'd like us all to get to a point where our books just reflect the world. Yeah, I, that's such a good way of putting it. I, I, you're absolutely right. It shouldn't be a big deal, whatever a relationship is. Like, like um, the, the book, they both die at the end. There, it mm -hmm. shouldn't be mind-blowing that it turns out that it's two gay men that are having, it should just be they have a relationship towards the end of their life, towards yeah. the end of it. But I know it, it, it does still, like you said, it feels like there's this, like as a, someone who's trying to write, you know, I want to write these characters, but I also want to give them the respect that they deserve, and I don't want to put something in a story that ends up being, uh, oh, well, there's a queer character, and they're just, and Adam just wanted there to be a queer character, and you know, you want to give it the, the right amount of respect, but it is, it's so challenging to. I mean, I feel like the other side of that is, um, no one's ever going to ask you whether there, why there's a straight character in a book. Mm -hmm. And like, if people are going to ask you why that particular character is queer or disabled or a character of color, I feel like that probably tells you more about the person who reads it. Than Obviously, you have to stay away from tokenism, but I'm, I'm worried that we have we're, we're trying to get to a point where you have to justify having like, diverse characters hmm. when you wouldn't justify having default characters. Um, 
who aren't the default, but are just seen as more neutral because it's easier. Mm -hmm. Kind of on that, you know, in the introduction and, and a lot of stuff that gets written and said about you, you are lumped in with being a author who focuses on diversity. Is that, you probably don't think of yourself that way because you're just writing about what you know. Like, is that hard for you to kind of take on that label? I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it is something I'm very consciously focused on in the sense that um, a lot of the stories I'm writing now and a lot of the characters I'm writing stem from my growing up as a queer, non-binary, disabled creator who never found themselves in a book. So there is a lot of that that's, that's a very conscious decision of I am going to write these stories that I know personally and I know well because I've never seen them before or the few times I have, they were not necessarily always done well. So in that sense, I, I, don't, I don't mind people seeing me as, as a diverse creator or a marginalized creator because that's part of my life. Um, I, again, I'm, I'm, I, what does worry me in general, not so much for me personally, is that we're still very focused on like mainstream versus diverse. And I think that's, that part gets tricky because that shouldn't be the, the, the dichotomy that it is. Um, something else about kind of the craft is when, when we talked a few times before about this is where it ends and you've been very vocal about how, I think I, I saw you say basically for every hour you wrote for this is where it ends. Mm -hmm. You spent an hour researching you know, shooters and school shootings yeah. and the site, you know, the, everything that you could find about it. There's also a lot in Before I Let Go about mental disorders and, of course, Alaska and being yep. so remote. So what was the research mm -hmm. process like for the second novel? I mean, it was still fairly intense. It was different, obviously, because it, it wasn't so much tied to a, like, state of affairs but um, a lot of it was I, I spent a lot of time researching Alaska I didn't get to go on a research trip alas which would have been really cool um, but I did spend like I watched documentaries I spoke to friends of mine who live or lived in Alaska and asked them like tons of questions about the most ridiculous things <laughs> just to get a sense of okay, so what is daily life like when you live in a like live in a town that only sees a few hours of sunlight each day? How do you deal with that? Mm -hmm. um, so there was there was definitely there's still that that one thing to get it right, and I think that for me is an important part of of telling a story is telling it truthfully and and respectfully, and that also means making sure those details are correct. Mm -hmm. um, and when it comes to writing a character with uh, bipolar disorder, it also meant talking to people who live with that and listening to their experiences and um, trying to find a good balance between how do I portray this without stepping on other people, on their experiences, on how do I find a good balance between telling this story and still listening? And that's, 
yeah, I think that at least for me that that's very much part of part of the writing process, wanting to get everything as right as possible, mm -hmm. which is never and, and again it, it, that too is never going to be perfect, but I want to be able to at least like feel confident that when I put a book out there, I can say this is something I believe in, and I may have messed up certain things, and I'll stand for that too. I was going to say, do you, do you get to the point with both and then everything else that you're writing, do you get to the point when you're researching it and it's almost like, I can't start writing this until I know as much as I possibly can. Do you ever worry about like, ne like needing to know as much as you yeah. possibly can, kind of like being paralyzed by wanting to have as much information before you get the words down? Yeah, I mean, kind of. Um, it, that, that is definitely one of the reasons why for many years I said I was never going to write historical fiction. Because as a historian, <laughs> I want to make sure that like the smallest details are perfectly aligned with whatever we know about whatever period in history I would be writing about. Um, having now read historical, having now written historical fiction um, for a for the anthology that's coming out later this year, it's it was an interesting. Um, challenge of letting go. <laughs> I feel like that's probably the good, mm -hmm. the, the good description. Um, and, I, and, and, and that taught me a lot about writing contemporary again too, because mm -hmm. it's, it, there is definitely that sense of I want to get everything as right as possible and I can't start before I have, I have all the details, I have like the, the plot outline for the book, I have all the beats, all the narrative beats, all the like, character descriptions. And and at some point, you just have to decide that it may not be good enough yet, but it's a start, and, and you can't edit a blank page. So you have to start somewhere, and you have to build on that. And that's easier once, though, one that, once that foundation is there, um, as opposed to just like lumping all the building blocks together and hoping it turns out to be a, a castle or a house or whatever. So you have to start with that foundation, and it's okay if that's not quite the entire structure yet, as long as you make sure that foundation is solid. Yeah, yeah, you can't edit <laughs> a blank page. Might be my favorite motivational quote I've ever heard. I'm gonna put that on a poster, like a <laughs> cat hanging I'll there. I'll just tweet this to you. Yeah, like please do. Just one. Yeah, Marie and I were discussing <laughs> my my writing earlier. Just as motivation, just once a day, if you can, <laughs> yeah, just when it's convenient for you. Um. <laughs> Well, yeah, because we were talking before dinner, we're all writers, and we were talking about the process. And I, and I have to sort of ask, for those that don't know, Adam and I have a podcast called The Professional Book Nerds, so later you will be able to hear this episode. But Good plug. You're welcome. Well done. <laughs> this is our very first podcast guest author. It was like two over two years ago, so it's a fourth episode. Before this is where it and even came out, correct? Yes, yeah. this was before your first book came and out. And now yeah. you're like a New York Times bestselling author. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> well, not even that, but I mean, but as you said, like you still you have a part time job, like you still have a day job. Like, yeah. how do you balance that all with being on a book tour too? And just poorly. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mostly I, I end up writing evenings mostly and weekends and occasionally nights, um, and like whenever my days off are. Um, I, I, I work part-time, so that helps. Um, 
but it's 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 a constant balancing act, and it's not something that I have an easy answer to as to how you should do that, because I'm mostly just like feeling my way through it as I go, and it depends on. Sometimes all your deadlines will happen at the same time, and obviously, before I let go, just came out a couple of weeks ago. I have uh, the anthology I've just mentioned will be coming out in September, so that means there's a lot of overlap in um, just the deadlines for those two books. And if you're lucky, all of your work deadlines will happen at the same time too, because that's whatever Murphy's Law of Writing is, <laughs> is that. And, and you, just, you just go with it. Um, and try to be mindful about self-care occasionally. Mm -hmm. I'm not really good at that. Um, as we've established when I realized earlier today that I hadn't eaten yet. <laughs> um, <coughs> but it's, it's a matter of, of just minding yourself and, and also, and that's probably the best thing I did after This Is Where It Ends came out. Writing used to be a hobby for me, and that's, that's easy because it's something that gives you joy and obviously you're doing it with the aim to, aim to be published one day, but it's, it's, it was something that was purely for me. And after This Is Where Dance came out, I realized that I suddenly, suddenly had to share this with other people. And I shouldn't, suddenly couldn't just write for hobby anymore, I was also writing um, contracts and on deadline and with expectations of all these people around me. So one of the best things I did was find another hobby, <laughs> um, which in my case is playing Dungeons and Dragons a lot. Um, but that helps me to occasionally just step away from all of it and realize the world won't end if I'm a few hours, if, if I pick something up a few hours later or if I don't answer a, a specific email immediately. Um, and it's far easier for me to keep going if I feel re-energized by doing something that I love and something that's purely for me. You also happen to have the coolest Dungeons and Dragons group I've ever heard of, by the way. <laughs> well, They're all amazing authors, <laughs> which doesn't hurt. Um, okay, so I wanna, I wanna open up for questions in just a second from you guys if you have any, but as we mentioned, you were our fourth episode ever. Mariko is actually the first person I ever interviewed for any job ever, and this will be our 200th episode, so normally, we do a thing in the middle of our podcast called the Nerd Nine. There are nine rapid fire questions. We already asked you those multiple times. <laughs> so I asked some people online for some questions for you. So I've got a few questions and a few of them that uh, we came up with as well. These are nothing like the heavy topics we've just been talking about. So we're gonna go through these quick, then I have one more question for you, then we'll get some questions from you guys. <laughs> so first, what would your Patronus be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I know. I would say uh, Peregrine Falcon. That's good. We can go back and forth okay. on these. Uh, if you were building a tree house, what would be the essentials in it? Bookshelves. <laughs> <laughs> a <That's> desk. A <laughs> um, okay, so who is your favorite literary villain or comic villain? Oh, wow. Right? That was a good one. That's, that's also like a broad spectrum. Uh, I know. That could be like two questions. Yeah. yeah. I, um, I didn't write these ones. These are <laughs> other people. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I, um, we can come back to that. Yeah, let me think about okay. that. Uh, what would your superpower be if you could choose one? I'd love to be able to teleport. 
That yes. would be so helpful. Right? Yeah. It'd be so helpful. It's like also, flies would be great too, but that would no, it would still take a while yeah. to get from the Netherlands to here. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. teleportation would be cool. Like all the time. Yeah, I'll be fine right. with that. Um, I think you made us do this one on Twitter with us as well, but what piece of furniture <laughs> would you be? I saw that. That was great. I will have to go for bookshelves too, though. Bookshelves. <laughs> That's a good answer. Uh, what would be the name of your autobiography? Or what will be the name of your autobiography? You probably know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I'm definitely not ever planning to write one. Um, wow. I told you mine earlier is when can I snack? You're just <laughs> like. That's, yeah, that's, that's a really good one. We can come back to this too. Didn't know we were going to be <laughs> grilling you with these ones. Wow, yeah. I, I will also think about that. Okay. I will give you answers to both of okay. those at some point. But <laughs> uh, all right, so what color are you going to dye your hair next? I think it's going to stay blue for a while, but I may switch it up with like some green or like azure or something like. I really enjoy the, the whole blue, blues and purples mm -hmm. because it's fun and at least I'm recognizable from my author picture, <laughs> which is also <laughs> helpful at times. Um, and I've always wanted to dye my hair blue since, since I was tiny. So it's, I'm really enjoying the fact that I can now and that my day job lets me get away with that. <laughs> um, they're a bit confused at times, but it's okay. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm an eccentric author. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> okay, so we can get back to the villain one. We can mm -hmm. have some questions up there. But first, uh, do you have any books, and I, this is a leading question, <laughs> do you have any books that you would recommend from some of your author friends or things that you really love? I mean, I have, I have maybe like six of them. Roughly six of them? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you name them? Like Is there any chance you could name them? We don't, you don't have to, because people will see them in a little bit. <laughs> uh, there's Lindsay Miller's Mask of Shadows, Wendy Colworth's um, Little and Lion, um, Sanja Menon's uh, when, Dimple, uh, when Dimple Met Rishi, um, Fox Benwell's Kaleidoscope Soul, uh, Francesca Zappia's Eliza and Her Monsters, and Samira Ahmed's Love, Hate, and Other Filters, which is recently a bestseller and one of the best books I've read like in the last year. I was just testing you to make sure you could get all the books in the <laughs> yeah. back. Okay, the reason, I'm <laughs> the reason I'm asking is we have one copy of each of Marika's favorite books of right now. So there's six of them total. So we're going to take six questions from you guys, and you're going to get some of her favorite books in response for asking them. So can we get a few house lights by any chance, and we can see if you guys have <laughs> any questions. If not, I'll ask six more questions and I will take them all. I'll just repeat this. So just so everyone could mm. hear, uh, the question was about the research of school shootings and if anything kind of struck you about what the research was and, and all of that. I mean, the one thing that struck me most when I was diving into the research was how frequently they occur. Um, and I sort of knew, 
but I didn't quite realize how common it is. And that, that was honestly just like a terrifying realization. Like that that's apparently become normal or whatever. Like I, I don't think you can actually call it normal, but it's, it's become like almost an accepted part of school life, which I could not fathom. Um, I still can't really. Um, I'm trying, like, the thing is with, with books like these, one of the things I set out to do for myself is like I don't want to tell this story and give answers or solutions because that's going to be disingenuous coming from someone who did not grow up in a country with access to guns or like availability of gun laws or anything like that. Um, so I mostly just wanted to ask questions. And the more research I did, the more I realized that, uh, and the more I wrote to, the more I realized I had only had more questions. And, and even I'm not entirely sure I can always give the answers. I can give my answers, but I hope the book inspires people to figure out answers for themselves, whatever they may be, because it depends so much on, on again, what's normal and what, what you're used to. <laughs> I, I work uh, at a local government and I manage a, a traineeship program. So we a traineeship program. So we hire recent graduates and they come work for us for two years, and I get to manage the whole thing and, and sort of be in charge. And it's fun. <laughs> right in the middle. Yes. Mm -hmm. So the, the question was about how you use timelines in, in your writing and you can also talk about how you write that if it's in the order of the timeline as well since we talked about that earlier. <laughs> yeah, um, well for me I, uh, the, the whole playing with timelines and also different formats. Um, in in uh, Tiwi there's like texts and uh, Twitter messages and blog posts and then before I let go there's letters and phone calls and uh, some weird script formats because that seemed like fun at the time. Um, it's, it's, it's for me it's, it's a way of challenging myself to find different means and different ways of telling a story. And that's something that intrigues me as a reader. It's something that appeals to me. And it's also something that allows me to um, approach stories a little bit differently than like a regular chronological order would. Um, and in some case, broaden the scope of a story and, and specifically looking at those different formats that's, that helps me get past the restrictions of the um, character's perspectives and, and offer a bit more than that. And it's, yeah, it's, it's mostly just a matter of, of it, it really appeals to me as a reader and it appeals to me creatively as a writer. So it sort of just happens. 
with This Is Where It Ends because that was such a strange format to begin with, um, telling a story set over the course of 54 minutes. And um, I felt that I, I, I really enjoyed that. And then when Before I Let Go happened, I honestly started it off as a more traditional, traditionally shaped story. And very quickly realized that there wasn't as much appeal to that for me um, and as much excitement in, in the creating of it. And once I start getting bored by a book while writing it, that doesn't bode well for anyone reading it because I need to at least be at a point where I'm like madly in love with a book and it's fine I, I'll go through processes go, go through moments where I hate it and loathe it passionately but I have to have that baseline of being in love with the concept of it the idea of it the like, excitement of it so for me that, that I find that in, in playing with different styles really and that purple hat in the middle back Go for it. <laughs> Question was <coughs> differences between jumping between historical and contemporary writing. Um, mostly awareness of language. Um, I've 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 now written two historical short stories, and one was set in the early twentieth century, which was relatively easy in terms of translating like modern. Uh, ideas and modern words and language and uh, to to whatever was appropriate for that time. Um, the other is set in the 14th century, which was a lot harder when it comes to <laughs> just like the crutches you have while writing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but just things you lean on in terms of description that suddenly don't work anymore because there is like a, a 700 year difference and the world looked quite a bit different then. Um, so there's things like that that mostly triggered me in, uh, in needing to find ways to approach that differently. And it, that wasn't so much a, uh, a challenge. As, well, it, it was a challenge, but it, it's something that, that again, creatively really appealed to me. Um, but I do try not to jump around too much when I'm set in one particular era or time zone. And I don't try, I, I try not to go back and forth between like medieval times and contemporary times because that would inevitably end up with my writing about swords in high school and, you know, <laughs> phones in, in the Middle Ages. I so. mean, I'd read that. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're pretty easy targets. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, all the way in the left and the white. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
No, that, that, was, that was definitely very conscious. Um, you're good. Go ahead. Yeah, I wasn't going to repeat the whole thing. You're good. <laughs> so <laughs> no, you're fine. No, that's great. Yeah, no, you give me that look. You're okay. good. Talk. You're good. Um, no, I, I very consciously wanted to tell um, a story about mental illness and, and our perception of mental illness and ableism and um, um, how ostracizing mental illness can be, but also in that particular sense, namely that we connected to creativity, that we have this myth or trope of the immensely ill artist where suffering for your art is seen as a good thing, which seems like I, I enjoy making art, if you can call it art, but I really enjoy it. Um, and, and I'm okay with suffering at times, but it seems slightly ridiculous that we say to each other that you should suffer for your art or you can't get it, you can't make it, you can't get it done. And that was something that really struck me, well, A, as bizarre, but B, also as dangerous. So I wanted to approach that in fiction and see what would happen if I, if I took that um, as a starting point and, and use that for, for Kyra as a character. And basically pushed it to its extremes. So that was definitely a conscious choice of wanting to address that and wanting to be in conversation with it and being aware of how important it is for people to get good medical care or help or therapy or medication or whatever it is. Because sometimes you just need it and it's amazing when it's there and it's it can hurt a lot when it isn't. So, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely wanted to wanted to talk about that, and I think I'd like for us in general to normalize that more, and get away from the stigma of mental illness in general. Okay, time for one more. One more. Um, in the blue, in the white headband, <coughs> the blue. Yes, <laughs> right there. How did you get into writing? <laughs> well, I read a book when I was 10, I think. I think it was 10. I, I, I've, been al I've always been telling stories, and I've always been reading, and I've always been interested in just like books and publishing and storytelling. And uh, I knew that was something I maybe wanted to do, but didn't really do anything with it. And then I read a book, which um, has since been translated as Letter for the King by a Dutch author called Tonke Dracht. Um, it's a classic Dutch children's book. And I read it and I finished it and I flipped it over and I read it again. And I started reading fan fiction, writing fan fiction. And that was the point where I mean, it wasn't it wasn't called fan fiction at that point. Like this was the mid '90s. Um, it was just writing a story set in another person's world because I really loved those characters. But that was the point where I was like, I want to do something like this. I want to be able to tell stories, to write books that inspire other readers, that create worlds where you can literally get lost in. Um, so. I don't think that 
particular piece of fan fiction amounted to anything more than a couple of pages, but it very quickly morphed into my wanting to write original stories and wanting to be published um, to the point where I sent my first, first book to a publisher when I was, I think I was 14. Um, it was dreadful, also not necessarily book-shaped. I mean, it felt like it was, but looking back on it, it was probably like an extended short story. Um, it felt like a lot of words at the time. But that was that was very much a genesis for me of wanting to write, wanting to write books, and wanting to evoke that same sense of magic that I found in those pages. I know we have a lot more questions. I want to let you guys get a chance to ask them up close and personal in just a little bit here. But I personally want to say uh, this means a lot to us. Like I said, you're the first person I ever got to talk to recording something, and in addition to that, having my favorite author be at my library, getting to sit down with you means a lot to me. So thank you for your books. Don't ever stop writing them, please. And thank all you guys thank you. for coming out. We really appreciate it. Thank so you so thank much. Thank you very much. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.